Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. In 1997, Tony Blair spoke of education, 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 but has that been the focus of his Labour colleagues since 1999? Foundation phases, new curriculums and leaning piles of PISA results appear to have formed the legacy of Welsh education in the devolution era. But have the Welsh Government made us the learning country we were promised? Or do the next Welsh Government need to go back to school? Joining us this evening is Martin Johns, author and academic and Professor of History at Swansea University. Hello, Martin. Hello. Uh, we've got Belinda Lovick-Edwards, who's the regional organiser for the NSUWT Teachers Union. Hello, Belinda. Good evening. Uh, we've got Rachel Hughes, who is the visiting professor at Glyndor University and the non-executive director of the Education Achievement Service. Hello, Rachel. Hello, lovely to see you. Thank you very much for being here. And we've got Rajvi Glassbrook, who's a head teacher in Newport. Hello, Rajvi. How are you? Hello, good to be here, Matthew. Thank you very much for all being here. Um, we're going to start with a nice broad question then. In your opinion, how have the Welsh Government handled the education portfolio in the 22 years of devolution? And we'll start with uh, Martin. What do you think? I don't think there's been any disasters, but I think it's fair to say that education hasn't been revolutionised at any level. I mean, for me, maybe the most radical thing that's happened so far has been the introduction of the foundation phase. But it's, it's, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's too early to tell really what difference that, that has made. But it does show that devolution and Welsh Government can think differently. But, you know, I do worry sometimes that we thought differently for the sake of thinking differently. There has been sometimes a determination to do things differently from England without really thinking through why um, we, we're doing that. So I think when we look at the picture as a whole, certainly there are no disasters, but I don't think there's anything that's, that makes you stand out. You know, if, if someone 25 years ago was comparing our education system to today, you know, I don't think they would be able to pick anything that said, wow, devolution's really revolutionised what we do. No, I think very, very similar. And I think it's, um, it's not great that we're sort of saying there haven't been disasters. Um, there's a huge continuous sort of need to be marking point of departure from England. And I think that's a real issue. And I think sometimes something like where there have been revolutionary sort of big sweeping um, changes like foundation phase, they haven't been for the best. And sometimes they're so invested in it, there's a sort of reluctance then to go back and actually look at research evidence, but to plow on regardless, because, you know, we've done this now, we're in it for the long haul. I think they're similar with the curriculum for Wales. There's such an absolute preoccupation right now with, no, this must be built on teacher agency. No, we must not prescribe um, anything, that actually there's a failure then to prescribe the absolute bare essentials. And one of my bugbears, sort of anybody who uh, you know, listens to anything I say is reading, you know, and th there's a point at the moment where Estin and the Welsh Government are purposefully pursuing a path with reading where they are rejecting every bit of research there is about the science of reading on um, phonics. And it's almost become a point of um, like being progressive, if you like, thinking differently from England, and it's detrimental. Um, you know, they're same with prescription of history, perhaps, or prescription of core ideas that need to be in the curriculum. But um, there is now such an overriding commitment to saying, no, we won't prescribe, we'll let teachers and schools organise their curriculum, that sometimes I think ideology often overtakes. And, and that often and very wrongly is based on showing a point of departure from England. And it's not always to go to the best. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, both sets of comments, and I think we're we're still on a path to enlightenment. But you know, twenty years in, it's like we're on the you know we're try, still trying to head to Mars. It's th there's been ups and downs, and there's been successes where, um, in contrast to England, where there's been purposeful engagement, and there's been this also this you know social partnership contract where they've listened. But sometimes, you know, they, you know, they've been closed off to new ideas or failed to pause and reflect and consider um, whether what they've done is on setting them on the right path. If it's broken, they've been too perhaps slow to acknowledge their failings. And I think that takes quite a bold step and some courage and not to be afraid to say, we tried it, it didn't quite work. Um, and we're going to, you know, just to look at other alternatives. And it's quite frustrating as well from both a, a trade union perspective, as well as a, a parent with an investment, you know, invested interest is to, you know, just to say, we, we keep having the same discussion, the same debate and the same issues around numeracy, literacy, and that compare and contrast, it's becoming, you know, sort of uh, quite frustrated now, 20 years in, 
where uh, sort of like Martin said, I, I was hoping for some bold ideas and to really show that we could make a difference and not to be afraid of, of some of the decisions that we made. It's quite sad that we are talking about avoiding disasters rather than sort of new paths. Rachel, what do you think? Is it a, is it a case that we're just avoiding disasters or have there been any sort of genuinely uh, revolutionary acts by the Welsh Government in the education sector? Well, you're at polars there because we've got disaster and revolution. And I think we're probably, I think we're probably somewhere in the middle. Um, you, you know, I think the foundation phase, you know, like Martin said, was, you know, is a, was a very radical programme that was put in place and that was evidence informed, you know, that was trialled out in other, other countries as well. And, and you know, I think the new curriculum for Wales builds on some of that. And, you know, I do, I do agree that, you know, we are 20 years in, but we are also, it takes some time for some of these to, to embed and change. And, you know, teacher education um, has changed. And actually there's a whole kind of confidence and capacity issue that we've got to try and deal with here. We're changing the way in which pedagogy happens in the, in the classroom and outside of the classroom. We're changing the relationships that schools have with communities. And some of these things are sort of quite entrenched and embedded. I'm more hopeful. I think, yes, it is different to England. And, and maybe I see some of those, those things played out in a kind of policy and political space. But actually, I'm really proud of where we are in Wales. And actually, we are making, um, a, taking a different path. You know, we don't have the, the stats in the same way. Okay. Okay, we have kind of testing and, and league tables, but they're not the same. And I think that's a really good thing to, to have in place. Um, and I'm, you know, and I see now with the with the workforce, you know, the teacher workforce, the profession is really excited about the, the new curriculum. Certainly the con you know, the contact that I have with people, um, very excited about the agency that they have and seeing that playing out in the classroom in a very, very positive way. So yeah, there's still more things to, to do and we're still on that pathway of of learning and but um I'm more hopeful and I'm really proud of what we're trying to do. One of the one of the things in the links to the past, which perhaps I don't think anyone mentioned, was the the PISA tables. Have any of you got any thoughts on the legacy of PISA in Welsh education? We can sometimes do the wrong thing in Wales where if something doesn't quite work for us on a scale, we remove that goalpost and we don't measure by that anymore. I think there is a place for PISA and I think and at the moment as it stands where we don't have any league tables it's probably our only measure our only comparison if you like that's not insular you know that's on a world scale um, and so Lucy Crane is somebody who writes very positively about this and there is I think there is a place for PISA but there's something bigger I think the one thing that we really haven't mentioned in all of this is a deprivation gap and this has been the one thing we've had so many education ministers or, you know, and probably too many to see anything through. And since Leighton Andrews, at least, it's been an explicit agenda, you know, reduce the deprivation gap, education as a means to, you know, ambition, reducing poverty of aspiration, you know, raising expectations. And it's the one thing that has consistently widened and widened and widened. And now we've got an appalling poverty rate in this country and nothing. And I know COVID is just, to me, on it's a tip on the iceberg of something that's actually highlighted this gap. Nothing that we have done so far has shown any signs of reducing that deprivation gap. And to me, sadly, even the new curriculum doesn't acknowledge or talk about that enough. And Professor Chris Taylor talks very interestingly about this. Uh, the fact that, you know, it's explicitly being raised by universities and they're not talking about it enough. And um, so PISA, yes, it's a measure and I think it's important. Um, and I don't think we should do away with it, but we need to be looking at our own biggest yardstick, which is uh, poverty. I think what we have to see is that education is part of the ecosystem. You know, education is one area, but those things that we're talking about in terms of those attainment gaps and those um, increasing, you know, diverging sort of um, positions that we're in are all stem from a whole bunch of other things. You know, if we don't address those kind of root causes, you know, that yes, absolutely the poverty element, you know, food poverty and insecurity, poor housing, all those things. So we've got to ensure that our learners are in their educational settings and able to thrive. And if we're not in the place where we can really do that, whatever we have in place won't be as effective as it needs to be. So I think there's a there's a piece here for, you know, for Welsh governments going forward and taking heed of the Wellbeing Future Generations Act to think about well-being in its holistic sense and to really start to address some of those kind of root causes. So we've we're thriving in on all areas really. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think spot on. You've just sort of hit the nail on the head, Rachel. I think it is so much about well-being. 
Um, but it's really, really important, actually, more than ever now, that we have a really clear understanding of what we mean by well-being. And I'm worried that in some schools, there's this rhetoric of the children aren't ready to learn because they're not in a good place. And they're the ones who need the learning most, but we're almost removing them because we're not thinking of well-being as linked in with learning. We're thinking of it as almost something where they need to go out of the class, often out of literacy and maths classes, to go and have a talk about how they're feeling. And that's how it plays out in schools often. You know, a TA will come and get the children out. And actually, it's costing them. And we're, because we're thinking of the two are separate and there needs to be a really clear understanding of what well-being is and a lot of well-being can come from thriving and it's not something that exists in isolation and I'm seeing a lot of that in schools at the moment and I think that's really really worrying because children who need it most who need the sort of educational sort of expert you know exposure the most are being removed from it in the name of well-being so I think we need, really need to think about exactly what we want well-being to be in schools. And therein lies the rub, because we're talking about some joined up and integral sort of uh, working together. And I think we're not there yet. And education is always seen as this, you know, like every government department, it stands alone. And the future gen sort of, you know, the commissioner and the work that she's done and her team, I, I don't see why there's, there's not that sort of stronger link between the two. I think we're again it's sad that we're still having this debate you know sort of around poverty and around poverty of aspiration in particular and about a child's self-esteem and self-worth is sort of you know sort of it is the foundation of of their attainment uh, going forward you know and I think that is you know sort of trade unions and every sort of um sort of group or sort of organization has a role to play in that and it shouldn't just be with it you know sort of the the teachers themselves or the education sector and I think that the focus has to change because otherwise we're going to continue on this path and you know the the new curriculum and whilst all its aspirations are on paper are fantastic it's still a concern that that gap is not going to diminish you know that's a difficulty that I have with the bill I'm not seeing anything within the new curriculum bill that's going to make me feel that future generations of children are, are going to be far better off than we are right now. We, we've had the curriculum now mentioned several times. Do, do you think the new curriculum and all that it's going to do will really address a lot of the issues that we've raised already tonight? I mean, for me, I, I agree with everything that's just been said. The most serious issue in Welsh education is the gap um, related to poverty. And, you know, we, we need to remember how big it is. I mean, in 2019, 28% of pupils eligible for free school meals got five GCSEs A to C, that's 28%. But amongst pupils who weren't eligible for free school meals, it was over 60%. You know, it's, it's a huge gap. And the, it's really difficult to see how the curriculum is going to address that. I mean, the curriculum is designed to allow schools to do their own thing. It's meant to produce variation in outcome, whereas in many ways, what we need is less variation between our schools. Um, you know, what you need to do almost is, is throw money at those schools in more deprived areas, give them more teachers, give them more resources. And so much effort is going into the curriculum. I don't think it's fixing the right problem. And it's, to be honest, it's difficult in some ways to see what problem it is trying to fix. Because, um, you know, is what we schools already have considerable freedom in what they teach. Is what's actually going on in the classroom the problem and I don't think it is you know it, it's much wider socioeconomic problems the other thing that concerns me about um about the curriculum is the rush that there seems to be to implement it which I think has been partly driven by this year's election and, and the desire to get everything passed in legislation before this year's um, election COVID has turned everything upside down for everybody especially schools you know it was difficult for schools to prepare anyway and now they're having to deal with a completely unanticipated problem while also completely re redesigning their curriculum and if you have a curriculum that allows schools to basically do what they want within a broad framework that also means they cannot change if they want to essentially um, and it may well be that because of practical issues um, not a lot changes from this curriculum there are similar curriculums all over the world and they've all produced similar results. That's what the research says. They don't produce always big, exciting, innovative curriculums. Often teachers and schools are very conservative in terms of what they teach. And there are unofficial canons of kind of topics that they all choose to teach regardless. I mean, in Scotland, there's a huge review going on in, in, at the moment into how their curriculum works. You know, 
what was wrong with waiting to see what that says before we hurry on and, and, and essentially copy their, their broad idea. We keep being told we've learned from Scotland, but from the outside, it's very difficult to see what lessons have been learned from other curriculums that are based upon similar models. Yeah, I agree that the, the timing of this, um, I, I don't understand why. Um, we're still plowing ahead with the changes. And obviously COVID has taught us a significant lesson in terms of, of sort of the impact that this is having on, on children's mental health. And I think any, any changes you know, sort of, um, I've got concerns in terms of are the resources in place, are the materials in place, are the teachers in place before, you know, um, to ensure that those pupils are not going to slip further through the net or going to slip further behind. And you're quite right. What What is wrong with sitting to wait to see what an, another nation is going through? Um, and I, I've looked at sort of some of the counter arguments and I know the Children's Commissioner is saying because of the impact of mental health uh, and sort of how in particular it's affected those children who from disadvantaged backgrounds is having, there is a necessity to keep plowing ahead with the curriculum changes. I, I don't necessarily agree and I've yet to be convinced that now is, is the right time. I think it's about pressing pause to make sure we've got all the foundations in place and that it is fit for purpose. Because in the past year, things have changed significantly in terms of how we as a society approach work. That's changed and that should reflect in how, you know, what the future world of work is going to look like for the children who are about to sort of enter into that. And I don't think it's, maybe I'm being naive, right? There's nothing wrong in pressing pause cannot agree more and I have you know I, I don't know why we are not pressing pause and I think time has been so essential I mean from the very start I never understood why we didn't have a huge at least sort of two years of working on professional learning and professional standards and you know, if this was going to be a curriculum led by teachers and teacher agency I never made sense to me why it ran alongside this sort of raising of standards you know that that alone in itself as a start we should have had two years on really building up a workforce. And now we're plowing on. And actually, a lot of good has happened. You know, through this COVID time, we've had a bit of a sort of almost an exponential upskilling of teachers with hope. You know, we've had 50 logins per second. There was some sort of report saying for hope, you know, for something that is it's quite a, been a powerful tool hub. It's been around a long time and they just weren't getting the take up for it. And during this time, we've had the take up for it. Teachers are using digital skills like never before. And in a way, the whole intention of teacher agency has sort of had to happen because schools by themselves, based on guidance, have had to build up their blended and hybrid learning plans. You know, they've had to deliver this curriculum in their own way. And I think there's a time to really pause and look at all of that that's happened and it will go wrong I really fear it will go wrong if we rush ahead and if we plow on and if we don't really learn from this lesson here and I just can't see any argument otherwise whereas you know normally things have two sides I just can't in this instance. I agree and and you know what I'm seeing you know is because I'm a school governor as well and Inevitably, the, the pandemic has been has has been a, a negative experience for many. It's also been a positive experience too, and I think schools are now looking to draw on the kind of positive aspects that they have have learned from being in this situation. So we have got, you know, we're looking at the kind of purpose of what that curriculum offer, you know, broadening that curriculum, looking at maybe the link that we're meeting the linguistic needs of all of our learners using how we're using technology. And one of the teachers in our school, I mean, honestly, I could tell you she could have her own YouTube channel because she's just, you know, talking through kind of mathematical sort of strategies through video. And as you say, you know, using the hub and all the software and platforms that are available has um, has been really brilliant. And, you know, I think there is an opportunity here to, yeah, definitely to learn and reflect on all of that um, and to embed some of that really excellent practice that has developed over this over a really short period of time. I, I would argue a little bit against the fact that this is just honest. I mean, it's certainly in our school, we've been working with developing our own curriculum for the last sort of eight months and evaluating and, and it's iterating all the time so it's not something that's just going to suddenly arrive you know schools before the pandemic have been working with this and increasing kind of professional learning and look looking and feeling what that looks like within within schools but certainly I think that opportunity to pause and reflect and and really harness all the positive aspects that we've we've learned during this period of time and and to make sure that we make that really when we're ready to kind of go live with the new curriculum, 
in its full sense that we can do that really well. You've all talked a little bit about how well teachers have innovated in this very difficult last year, but just how difficult has it been for teachers and for students to, to learn in this, to learn and to teach in this last year. Belle, do you want to talk a little bit about how some of your members have been feeling perhaps? Yeah, um, it, at this most simplistic level, it's been great for the public to finally see what teachers bring and sort of how they enhance our lives and their workload and their commitment to making a difference every day. And I think that's been really telling because um, and maybe this is just my hobby horse, but teachers compared to other key sort of workers were always seen as being almost lazy in some regards or just, you know, willing, taking on the job just for the holidays. And, and that, that that sort of stereotypical assumption of, of teachers has now been completely blown apart. But of course, behind that, you do have teachers who are exhausted because they have given their absolute all in these difficult circumstances, juggling their own family and caring responsibilities, as well as delivering, the, uh, you know, blended learning or going into school, um, sort of to make sure that when the children are coming back in different phases over the past year, this the school's been ready for them and the, and the teachers have given so much and again enhancing the new technologies enhancing hub I, I agree is an underrated tool and I, I I wasn't sure about it but I've been convinced and it also brings to the fore the talent that is in the education system through the teachers and their you know sort of their value and their worth has shone through um still not enough on a monetary level but that's for another debate on another day but nevertheless it, it's taken its toll um we have a significant number of members who are suffering their mental health has had a hit and you can't shy away from uh, from that and yet most have, have, have carried on because they don't want to let pupils and parents and carers down and i i think that that has to be recognized and my worry is that once someone takes a pause it's going to come you know it's going to then sort of take its toll and i worry that as soon as teachers pause it you know we're going to have a large number of teachers that are going to have absences perhaps because of stress and anxiety rajvi does that line up with with how you and your your other teachers have felt this year, last year or so yeah do you know what to an extent i think definitely because they've I've never, you know, I'd, I've never come, you know, the workforce has worked like you would not believe in the way that teachers have come together in the last year. And to be honest, I feel quite sad, actually. I don't think they have had the credit because, you know, you've always got, you know, certain papers who've got it in for teachers. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if the public still fully really respect what teachers have done, but they, the way they have come together, work, design, support to the children. And since the children have come back, you know, I think to go into school for even 20 minutes is to see just outstanding practice and understanding of where those children are and sometimes who is asking the teachers how they are and there is going to be you know a fallout I think there is something coming where we need to be prepared that there's going to be a catch-up and similarly I think there's a big financial catch-up somewhere I mean I know sort of Westminster have indicated that there's austerity measures afoot you know there's well, you know, when we broke up, when the first lockdown happened, we were at crisis point in terms of funding and schools were at a huge stretch. There's been this sort of temporary movement where actually we haven't spent a lot of money at schools because we've been in lockdown and there's been sort of COVID grants and things. But at some point, at the same time as all of that disappears, a bigger tightening comes is when teachers are going to feel the emotional impact of this as well. So there's and we've got time at the moment to plan for that. And I think there's a time for reflection. There's a time for evaluation. But there's also a time to plan for perhaps what's coming. And I think that teachers and staff and parents deserve that. They deserve that sort of pre-planning and respect. Um, and, you know, if funding wasn't slashed ever again in that way, gosh, it would be good. But, you know, I am worried that there's something coming. There's a storm of brewing, if you like. Uh, mine and Rachel, how has this last year or so impacted the university sector? I, I think it's varied massively for both students and staff. Um, you know, for me personally, it's not been too bad, but for my colleagues with young kids who are trying to, you know, do home learning as well as do their jobs, the hours it's required has been, you know, been crazy. And when you look at the students, for some, some students are actually quite happy. They've actually felt actually quite empowered by having classes online because they feel less anxious about, about, about speaking. You know, they, they've actually quite enjoyed it. But then there are others who don't have a quiet space 
to learn, to study, who are sharing a poor broadband connection with mum and dad working at home with, you know, with, with siblings. They don't necessarily have, you know, the IT um, equipment that we're expecting. So we're doing all these clever things that in some ways require lots of screens to be open and a really good broadband. So given what we said at the beginning about our concerns about inequalities in attainment and education essentially exacerbating pre-existing you know, poverty issues, exactly the same thing has happened at, at COVID. And you know, it's increased their social isolation as well. You know, it's not actually that learning online is, is a terrible experience. It's you don't get to sit next to someone and have some small talk before you know, before the class starts, you don't develop the sense of community as well as missing out on all the all the, all the social sites. So, you know, on the whole, you know, I, I do worry about what it's done to, to many students' education. Rachel, do you share those concerns? Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, these are the experiences that are played out in every single education setting, whether you're in foundation phase or whether you're in higher education, aren't they? You know, there are, there are differences of experience. And, you know, I you know, I had a very positive experience in, in university and I and I feel sad for those those students who have gone into, um, you know, higher education and missing out on that whole kind of university experience, um, you know, and the vibrancy of, of all of that. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's that's something that will is really hard, I think. One area where COVID has had a, a quite sizable impact is on examinations and assessment. We obviously in Wales have decided not to have A-level exams this year. Do you think that's a, a long-term solution? Do you think there is any potential for Welsh government to reappraise the way they assess students? Um, and can you see that having any sort of uh, knock-on effects or any impact on, on the way that students, because students in Wales obviously tend to go to uh, universities in England a lot of the time. Can you, can you see any long-term impact of that decision? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one, isn't it? And I think it ties into the discussion that we've already had around the curriculum, because if we're moving to a, a new curriculum that's got a completely different way of, of learning, you know, it strikes me that the GCSEs and A-levels as they sort of stand are not really fit for purpose to that kind of new approach. So I think there does need to be a whole um, re-evaluation of what kind of assessment and qualifications looks like, particularly in, in light of the new curriculum. And, you know, I, I chair our um, School Improvement and Curriculum Committee, notice that they're together. And um, one of the things that we always focus on is um, sort of teacher assessment and making sure actually our teaching staff have got that competency to be able to do that. And actually we really focus on their skills and their knowledge and sort of they know where children are. You know, and I think there is something about really valuing um, the skills and knowledge of our teaching profession in order to be able to really understand where, where children are and their progression and things. So I think it's really up for debate. I really do. I think you know, particularly in terms of the curriculum and the focus on this sort of teacher assessment going forward, I think, um, yeah, I definitely want to explore that if I was in government. Mel, have you got any thoughts on the assessment? Yeah, it, and it's just to sort of um, reinforce Rachel's point of view about the exams, and it should be that the curriculum sort of defines the qualification and not the other way around. And I think we're not there yet. We're bringing in the new curriculum, but we're still maintaining the status quo in, in regard to the exams. So you go, you're going to have that disparity. And, and obviously, I, I in terms of assessment, talking about workload, um, because obviously the recent announcement means that the schools are having to sort of uh, put together a policy, put together a plan of action. And of course, that comes down to workload and it comes down to who does it, who's got the competencies to ensure that the assessments are, are sort of going to be uh, sort of reasonable. You can evidence it because every child and every parent or carer of a child has the right to appeal. So you want to make sure that the teachers are not going to be sort of the sort of the, the front line then of having to deal with or take the sort of the fall then for that appeals process not being robust enough or the assessment process not being robust enough. And you want some consistency across Wales too. So you, you there are rogue head teachers who will come up with their own wonderful plan and uh, for assessment and you've just got to make sure that the checks and balances in place are going to be uh, sort of 
allow for a consistent approach because that's a massive concern that I've got is that yes we have to adapt we have to ensure that we have safeguard the pupils sort of um, sort of self-esteem and their values of self-worth because of all the hard work that they've put in but we also have to protect the teachers as well in terms of ensuring that they are not vulnerable to sort of um, any sort of sort of negative feedback then from parents or pupils. Yeah, no, I think, you know, there's, there's definitely a need for change. I think to have a, a, a curriculum that is going to be so variant, you know, from place to place is completely at odds with the GCSE system or an A-level system. It's like saying, do all this, but then suddenly get back in line in year 10 and in year 13 and do it our way. But I think it's really okay to say that we really don't know what it needs replacing with. And this has been the age-old concern because whenever we talk about GCSEs and A-levels, we open up a whole sort of related discussion. But when it comes back down to it, it's hugely flawed, but it still remains the most equitable system at the end of the day. It's still the one system which is like a leveller and everyone goes through it. And teacher assessment is powerful, but we know sometimes teacher assessment, even within a cluster of schools, you put five schools together and what they think a grade C piece of work looks like is going to be completely different. So it's not that it doesn't work, but we've never developed it at a wider scale, top down ever. It's always been something that's been grassroots. Um, coursework, you know, we're openly here saying there are children who've not got space to work. There are students who haven't got space to work in their homes. It's noisy. They haven't got IT access. So, you know, it's no brainer of who loses out most if we go down a huge teacher assessment and coursework you know, side of things, whereas an exam is that leveller. And this is where sort of Sophie Howes talks a lot from the Future Generations Act of Scrap This, but it's a real showing of exactly of what Belinda said, that there's that joined up thinking between what she's saying and schools isn't there, because we haven't got the answer for what we should replace it with that's going to really not, again, disadvantage the disadvantaged most. Um, and I really write that Qualifications Wales really takes their time with this and thinks about it. Yes, it needs a change, but um, a change can't just be scrapping things for scrapping's sake. Um, and it's, and again, and the last thing I suppose is it's got to be the one time that we do need to sort of, not, not even England, but broader than us, whatever we put in place has to be uh, respected and recognized by other countries. We cannot have an insular system where our children can, and students can only go to university within Wales because their qualifications aren't respected. We cannot cap that you know, opportunity to go beyond and move back and you know, have a place beyond Wales as well as within it. It made no sense, I think, to reform the curriculum without reforming the qualifications, to do it in two steps. You know, that's, that just doesn't make any sense at all. And I think, you know, as Rajvi just said, there's a gap between the philosophy and the practicalities of what's going on. Philosophically, I hate the way university, you know, and my own kids, it's all about qualifications. You know, the kids are saying to me, oh, I don't need to know that, it's not an exam. <laughs> And, you know, you try and have these grand debates in university and they're all about, well, do I need to read this for the essay? Um, you know, for me, education is about thinking and about discussing things and it's about ideas. And I don't really care what grade someone gets. But then you think practicality wise, they really care. And that's what drives them, um, what grade they get. And, you know, I know my kids probably wouldn't do any homework if, if, if there was no exam at the end of it. And I, you know, and I teach at university in a way that makes sure that they all get good grades. So I say I don't care, but actually, I, of course, I deeply care about it because it's partly how I'm judged on as much as anything. And I want them to, to feel that they've had something worthwhile about it. So there's this, there's this, this, this huge tension. We don't want education to be about numbers and about ticking boxes, but what's the alternative? Um, and I, you know, I don't really know what it is. And the, the point that just came up about we don't work in isolation and however much Welsh devolution wants to do its own thing. The real world is that, you know, we have fluid borders um, and we have to have an education system that is partly influenced by what's happening elsewhere. You see it in student fees as well. All right how much we charge to go to university is, 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 is incredibly influenced by what's happening over, over the border. So there's the philosophy, let's do what's best for the kids. And then there's the practicalities, which can be quite different. One of the, one of the things which tonight has shown is just the scale of the portfolio. Education, I don't think, gets a lot of the, the plaudits. It's always hidden behind it, uh, health and the economy. You know, we could go on to the, the various sectors you've all touched upon. But one of the things I do want to draw out from all of you tonight is about lifelong learning. It's an area I'm quite passionate about and think we need to put more emphasis on. I'm just wondering if any of you have got any thoughts on 
lifelong learning for the next administration? Yeah, it, it's really, really important. Um, and we need to kind of break down barriers between thinking that university is the, you know, is, the, is the golden thing to do when you're 18, but also breaking down the way university works, that it shouldn't just be three years when you're 18. Um, you know, we, we need a more kind of open modular system, if you like, that people can dip in and out of um, that, that works that works for them. You know, we need to make education more, more accessible. Again, it's easier said than done. And, you know, I do worry that lots of students go to university at a time when they may it's not really maybe right for them or they're not quite ready for it that you know they're going for the social life rather than the educational um the educational side so how we build up a place where going to university later or doing it over a long period is valued by individuals and by employers you know i, I i'm not sure but education is a right for us all um, and lifelong learning is absolutely key um, I completely agree, Martin. I didn't go to university, but I did feel the stigma of that. They've travelled along with me, go, applying for certain jobs, whereas I worked um, from the age of you know um, nineteen onwards. So my my skills that I developed weren't given that value. And I think lifelong learning sort of really, it, I'm pas equally passionate about it too. Um, and I think it, it does develop critical thinking. It, it, it does help uh, sort of young people in terms of not everyone is academically driven. So we have to get past that, you know, if you're successful at GCSEs, it doesn't mean that you're doing A-levels or AS and A-levels to go on to university. It, that shouldn't be the end game. That's that's the starting point of your journey, and it's like you. you I, I think we've got a bit skewed there, where we put so much stock into going to university, and you you develop these you know robotic A star grade GCSE students then who think that they that that's the only path for them. And lifelong learning. That's one thing about the curriculum that I, the new curriculum I do like is it does give opportunities for critical thinking. It does sort of look at sort of areas of learning where you touch on the skills that you need as an adult and in employment um, and not just sort of, you know, the skills you need to get you into an interview to, to, to pass to get to a place at university. Um, and from a trade union perspective, they educated me and I was, you know, I'm indebted to my trade union for giving me the opportunity to develop those skills and those types of education courses that were denied to me because I chose not to go to university. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And this is where uh, when we talk about the four purposes that are underpinning the curriculum and the professional learning, they have been criticised sometimes for being all things to all men. But the beauty of them is that they're not just purposes for what education should be. They're purposes for what we want to be as human beings, how we want to be as a country, how we. So, you know, if they are very, very broad in a way, perhaps that's a good thing because they're broad because it's onto them then that you sort of work out the finer flesh on the bones, you know, the, the finer sort of detail of it, but it is that concept of, and that's the real strength in the curriculum of how we want our children to be, how we want our students to be. And they don't, that doesn't come with a timeline and it doesn't come with a, you know, you do this and you do that and then you must go on to that. It comes as you dip in and out and it is, it really is a sort of lifelong path that you take. And I'm not going to use the word journey because that's awful, but um, this idea that you were, you know, you come at it and you move away and then something happens and you work. And I think the purpose is, if really understood, um, underpin that thinking and we really need to embrace that and build on that. I, I agree. And I think, you know, we're talking about lifelong learning. It's it's very varied piece as well. You know, it's not just about, you know, opportunities to, to dip into um, higher education and things. It's also about undertaking language classes in your community centre yeah and it's about learning whilst you're in work it's to kind of you know and actually if we're wanting to kind of really grow and thrive as a country having that like you say in terms of the purposes you know having that kind of desire to learn and grow and have that kind of growth mindset throughout our lives is really important but we need to invest in that as well you know and education doesn't stop at 21 and you know what does that look like and what spaces in our communities um, have we got that enable that lifelong learning or that all those different types of learning to, to take place you know and there's opportunities with the university sector at the moment I know with a civic mission you know to be able to 
to provide spaces for that. I know in Glyndor, you know, we're working um, on a project with Children's University, trying to kind of connect children in, but also providing opportunities for learning for, you know, for sort of leaders within civic society as well. So it's about the kind of role these institutions have that enable and create conditions that enable that kind of lifelong learning to happen as well, but it does need investing in. Talking of investing, you know, one of the subjects we haven't uh, touched upon yet tonight that's been mentioned is, is the funding side of things. Do you think it is just a matter of funding in a lot of the our education spheres or are there other things we really need the next administration to look at? In terms of funding, it's a it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, of course, I, I would always want kind of education to be funded to a much greater extent and teacher salaries to reflect the excellent job that they do and the skills that they have. I think in order for, for us to be able to, to kind of really, really grow is that we need to think about that funding cycle as well. So it's not just about the level of investment, which I would want to see obviously increase, but you know, on a kind of year on year funding cycle doesn't allow schools or education consortia, or, you know, to be able to plan and collaborate and really kind of optimize the resources and investments that we have in place. I know, you know, as EAS, we would really welcome that kind of longer term, you know, a programme for government sort of settlement, as it were, you know, in the ways in which, you know, they're looking to with, with other public bodies. I think that would really help and enable spaces for people to come together, to work together and things. I think accountability as well for funding. Sometimes I think a lot of money is sometimes thrown at schools, but where's the accountability for how that's spent, what impact it's had on children? And then similarly, there's a sort of other side that goes along with it. Of, um, and Rachel hit the nail on the head with this of wider learning within the community. But then at the same time, we in you know, a councils do um, class things like libraries or extra sort of language lessons as leisure and tourism. So as soon as you've got that as part of leisure, it's vulnerable because it's first in line then for cuts. Um, and it's not, I mean, I've never understood how can libraries not be classed as education, but they're not, you know, they're classed as leisure. So they get cut. And so it's that joined up thinking again, and it's that people talking, it keeps coming back around to the biggest themes. And I think, you know, the scale of the portfolio is huge. It's absolutely vast because it cuts into so many other spheres and so many other parts of policy. But it's that joined up thinking again and not just throwing money at a situation, but having a long term plan um, and not planning year on year, planning in a long term way. And then having real accountability for where that funding goes and what impact it's having um, directly on the ground. I think in higher education, the issue is not so much how much, but where it's spent. I mean, in, in many ways, Welsh student funding is very progressive, uh, certainly more progressive than in England, where you know, if you're from a low income family, there are various grants available to you that simply aren't available in England. And, you know, that that's a positive thing in opening up higher education. But what it also means is that a large chunk of the Welsh higher education budget ends up going to English universities because it follows it follows the student, which means that Welsh universities are underfunded when compared to their English rivals and they are rivals because higher education is, is essentially a market where we're all competing with each other for students. So personally, I, you know, I, I would like to see a system where university was cheaper for Welsh students staying within Wales, um, you know, and, and cheaper than it is, than it is now. Um, because it also creates a brain drain, you know, because what many students settle where they go to university and, you know, in crude terms, we are paying some of our brightest young people to, to, to leave the country. However, when you look at what's happened in Scotland, where essentially, you know, university is free for Scottish students who stay in Scotland, there's a limit on places there. And Scottish universities often want to get in students from England and, and elsewhere because they bring, you know, because they can bring higher fees. So, you know, it's difficult to come up with a system that that works for everyone. Uh, but at the moment, Welsh universities are struggling financially compared to some of their, their English rivals. But for Welsh students, you know, the current system is certainly more beneficial than the system in England. 
I agree completely. And I, I think that you've all referenced, it's not just the, the amount, it's where it's spent and how it's sort of, um, sort of, uh, you know, filters down. And I think until we get a government in Westminster, who is going to give us, a, you know, that pot of money that we need, um, then we're, you know, we, we have to think smarter, and we have to work in collaboration. And we have to sort of look at sort of, you know, local businesses, local sort of uh, or forums and social partnership. Um, and otherwise, I think the funding is, you know, the funding is, is critical and we're going to have that debate time and time again. And, you know, from a trade union perspective, we're always asking for more. We're always lobbying for more. And we always, you know, education is always a political football. Um, and we're always, you know, the compare and contrast depends on who you ask and from what area you're asking. Meanwhile, things remain the same and we're having the same debate about funding. So I think until we get to that position where there is enough money in the pot, we, we're going to have to think smart and work more, in, you know, in collaboration. And there's, you know, again, about best practice. Let, let use best practice. There should be no shame on a school looking to another school and saying, can I pinch your ideas? Well, that's that's collaboration. That's working together. And it's the same with looking at businesses and how business models in local sort of local startup firms, how, how they've grown. And, you know, again, you could look at how a school works. Again, you look at sort of how a governing body functions. Um, and sort of, you know, do they have the skills, knowledge and experience to determine how that money should be spent? Because with the best one in the world, a lot of uh, our governors are um, sort of the volunteers. And sometimes they're there through um, a series of being cajoled to sit on that uh, school governing body. But we need to equip them with skills and knowledge experience so they're making the right decisions. And they're also challenging the senior leadership in each school to make sure that the decisions that they are making are tested and are, are, can be validated. And I don't think we're quite there yet. So there is a, a prospect to do some smarter thinking around funding whilst we sit with bated breath about sort of what's in the pot every year. One of the, the questions we like at the end of a pod is, it's quite a difficult one, but if there was one policy you had to choose for the next administration to, to administer in the education field, whether it's from the found, uh, nursery right the way through to lifelong learning, what, what would be your, your approach in for the next administration? What is one policy you'd recommend to be taken forward after May the 6th? Martin? Financial incentives for students to stay in Wales. I, I would look at sort of the, is it the relationships, values and ethics that are within the curriculum and start sort of implementing them. There, there's very little cost to implementing them right now, but they could enhance the value and the sort of attainment and aspiration of young students from the word go and at very little cost, I believe. Yeah, for me, it's not so much perhaps um, a policy area other than that I wouldn't want education to be seen as that political football. I think what we need to do is have some stability and to really kind of work through the kind of the good practice that we've seen and, and start to embed that. But one thing that does irk me enormously is the language of catch up. And so when we're talking about education, I would really love um, us not to use language like deficit of learning, everyone needs to catch up, narrowing the COVID gap, addressing the deficit. And there's a piece of work that head teachers in the EAS area have been doing, which is about sort of encouragement and more positive language. So about reconnecting, seizing opportunities, bringing solutions, co-constructing, moving together. So I'd, I'd really welcome a change in the language around um, around education. Um, just a real focus on equity um, and not just equality, especially when it comes to basic skills, um, literacy, numeracy, reading, writing, and really using research informed ways to drive those forward and not being afraid to prescribe those on a national scale. Just doing what it takes to make sure our children leave school, reading, writing and counting and able to do the basics. Just, just I, I'm going off script now, Matt and Rachel, hate me but what what do you all think about uh, incentives or interventions at a really young age at that kind of nursery or pre-nursery age to, to help things later on have any of you got any thoughts on that kind of intervention 
It it very much. Uh, I, I think it goes back to a point. I can't. Sorry, I can't remember who made it. About if you're removing that that child to focus on one area of learning, you uh, or sort of their mental health and well-being and that intervention, you're removing them from perhaps the the, the sort of the most basic skills that they need during that sort of uh, uh, that period of time. So it's about that balance. Um, and intervention is a is a can be a wonderful tool when it's used appropriately. And when there's consistency of approach, and again, it comes back to we ask an awful lot of our teachers, and if they're not given the correct professional development and the skills themselves to be able to gauge whether that intervention is appropriate or not, I, 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 I it's hit and miss. You know, I have to sort of think about that for a second. Uh, Melinda's just said it in words I didn't have ex exactly that. It's it's how it's done, um, and it can't come at the cost of anything else. It's got to be a and you know something that boosts and supports extra rather than takes away anything no you articulated it better <laughs> i really didn't you did well it's my job now to ask the everyone's favorite hospital pass of a question uh given that this is a podcast about the election i'm going to ask you all now what you think will happen not what you want to happen but what you think will happen in may's election and we'll start with martin I think very few seats will change hands and not a lot will happen. Uh, Rachel? That's an interesting one. As today, the, the constituency that I'm in, which is Monmouth, has um, thrown up some interesting, as an interesting situation. Um, so the Tory vote may be split. So that may be the first time since we've had devolution that we might not have a Tory um, Senev member. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with Martin that I think there'll be very little that will change and uh, in low likelihood, you know, a coalition government with Labour and Plaid based around policies of, of mutual interest. Rajvi? Yeah, no, I think very little, very few seats will change hands, but I think in terms of numbers, I think I sadly see a rise for Tories and for Plaid, but I don't think that will reflect in the changes of the of actual seats. Uh, and now for the former Labour uh, candidate for Parliament for the Vale of the Morgan, Miss, Mrs Lovelock Edwards, how do you think the results will be in May? Well, it, it, it's hard for me to take off my political hat because I've just been doing some telephone dialogues of phone-in voters. And I'm, I'm quite optimistic that we'll, we might pick up one, one or two seats. I think that's what's going to happen. However, I do think that we will remain in sort of coalition um, with, with Plaid, despite Plaid's protests that they don't want to enter into coalition, we'll be in coalition. Um, and I would like to say that Kirsty leaving is going to be a loss to the Sun Earth. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who replaces her. Uh, on that note, thank you very much to all of you for, for, for coming to speak to us tonight. If people want to find you on Twitter and hear more of what you've got to say, where can they find you? Martin? Um, at Martin Johns, spell oddly. Rachel? <laughs> at Rachel Gwentlian, spelt correctly. Rajvi? <laughs> um, at our Glassbrook. Thank you very much. And Bell? At Bell for the Vale. Wonderful. Thank you very much for all of you for uh, speaking to us this evening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Blog. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.